0: Pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to the scripture. Father, there is an easy tendency for us to just think, well, this is just the next thing. So I pray that you would arrest our own hearts and minds to realize that this is the very word of God. So I pray that as we read it and think upon it, that you, Father, would work that perfect work of grace in us that brings your word to full life in us that blossoms and gives and encourages faith in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ezekiel in chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. I want to read verses 24 through 26. Ezekiel 28. hear the word of God. And for the house of Israel, there shall be no more a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. And then they will know that I am the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it. And they shall build houses and plant vineyards, and they shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For me, it's been a, a, a good Advent season. And I say that because I rather like not having to change my passages I, uh, when I come to the Advent season. I like to do something with Advent, but I was a little worried when I began Ezekiel when I did to think, well, maybe there won't be any Christmas sermons uh from Ezekiel given its nature, but we found some uh that have come rather nicely along and along. Uh because you see, remember that Ezekiel mentioned that the prophets in his day had failed. That is, they had failed to bring the truth of God to the people. And so we were able to think upon the prophet who would come and who would not fail, who would come and make the Father known to us. And, and Ezekiel came and said that the kings had failed them, that the kings had failed to lead the, the people into righteous living and they had not been God's representative of his righteous rule upon the earth and the kings had failed but then we were able to think about the king who would come and has come, who would righteously rule his people. And then we realized that the priests had failed in the days of Ezekiel as well. That there wasn't anyone found who could intercede on behalf of the people, to stand on behalf of the people before God. The priests were unfaithful and they were corrupt. But then we were able to think about the priest who was to come and who has come. That is Jesus, the very high priest of our own souls who intercedes for us and goes to the Father before us and makes sacrifice for us and pleads our case. And all of that and lives to guarantee our own salvation. So we were able to see that. And then today now I come to this passage in chapter 28. And if you're one who keeps score at home, you realize I've skipped some chapters. The last chapter we were in was chapter 22, now chapter 28, and let me just give you why. Number one, I skipped chapter 23 because, well, if you read chapter 23, you'll know why I skipped it. It's a lot like chapter 16, except now there are two prostitutes, and I just didn't want to go there again, quite frankly. It's the same sort of message that would have been preached, was preached from chapter 16, so you can read through that. Chapter 24 begins... The siege, the actual siege on Jerusalem. We've been saying, Ezekiel's been saying all this time, that the Babylonians are going to come against Jerusalem. And now by chapter 24, they're coming. But Before we leave chapter 24, just a glimpse into the heart and the life of Ezekiel. It's interesting that as we've been moving forward all this while, hearing these prophecies and seeing these prophecies enacted by Ezekiel as well, we know very little about the man. But in chapter 24, his wife dies. We realize he was indeed married. And his wife dies. And God says your wife is going to die. And he calls Ezekiel to use the death of his wife as another time to enact a prophecy. And this prophecy that he is to enact is to be enacted like this. That he is not to publicly mourn the death of his wife that he's not to give any indication publicly that his wife has died. And the reason that he's to do that, or the, 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 the prophetic word that's going to come to the people is, neither are they to mourn the destruction of Jerusalem. Now we don't know quite why, because there's no reason given why they're not to mourn of the destruction of Jerusalem, those who are in exile, as they hear of the city being destroyed. But We can only speculate to think that it's because Jerusalem deserved to be destroyed and God wants the people to identify with him and not with the people being judged at that point in time. But it may uh, move some of you to think how horrible that must have been for Ezekiel not to be able to publicly mourn the death of his wife and perhaps how unjust it was even for his wife not to be mourned. In that circumstance. My suspicion is that when we meet Mrs. Ezekiel in glory, she'll say, oh no, that was all right. Because wives and families of those who publicly minister sacrifice a great deal of their life. And they do it willingly, because they know what's at stake. And I have a suspicion that when we meet her, she'll say, that was all right, because there was something more important than my death being acknowledged publicly by my husband. What was more important is that God's word, his true prophetic word, went forth. And then we come to chapter 25. In chapter 25 to chapter 32 is a series of passages, and this won't surprise you, that they're judgment passages. But what's surprising is that they're not judgment passages on Jerusalem or on Israel. They're judgment passages about all the nations around Israel. God is saying that the Babylonians, that came, was going to blow through Jerusalem in a couple of years, take a couple of years to do it, going to go through Jerusalem and destroy it, will also then bring judgment and the downfall of the nations around Jerusalem and around Israel. That's what these chapters are about in chapters 25 through 32. And I think, at least at this moment in time, although I've committed myself to reread these chapters a few more times, I think this is the only sermon I'm going to preach from this series of chapters. And what I've landed on, the little island in the midst of this is what I read for you because it's a word of restoration. It's a word of hope to Jerusalem, to Israel, to the exiles. Notice what it says. Let me read it again. Chapter 28. It says, and for the house of Israel, there shall be no more a prick, a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God saying, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to, to bring the downfall of all these nations around you that have been thorns in your side, that have hurt you over the years and over the centuries, and I'm going to bring their downfall so that a day will come when you can live in safety and security. God's saying, I'm going to destroy all your enemies after I judge you, of course, but I'm going to destroy all your enemies and then I'm going to bring you back. And when I bring you back, there won't be any enemies around you to even be as something as a briar or a thorn to scratch you or to prick you. That's what he's saying to them in the midst of all this. Now, what do we make of that? Well, notice that God is going to bring judgment on these nations. You'll notice in verse 24 because they've treated his people with contempt. Now, God is judging them, but that's not treating his people with contempt. He's just being faithful to his covenant. Sort of like the time when when two of my children were out playing one day with a group of other kids in the sandbox, and and one of them, okay, Sarah, got knocked over. and, and, uh, And Joshua went up and hit the little boy who did it. And he says, wait a minute, she's my sister. I'm the only one who gets to hit her. Uh, something in me was proud of him that day I, I... but there's a sense in which God says I can judge my people, they're mine but no one else can touch them I can deal with my people but, and that's fine, but, but no one else can touch them, they're mine they're my children thus if I bring discipline upon them I can bring discipline upon them, but not you And so he comes to the nations around them who have treated Israel with contempt. Notice, if you'll turn back just a couple of pages to chapter 25 and verse 2, where the Ammonites are discussed. And he says, verse 3, Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Ah, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. In other words, he's saying, Listen, you saw my sanctuary being profaned. You saw my people go into exile, and you said, good. Ah, That wasn't yours to say. You should have mourned for my people and the dishonor of God. And then he goes on against uh, the Edomites, for instance, just later on in that chapter, verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and is grievously offended uh, in taking a vengeance on them. They came against my people when they had no right to come against my people. So God says, now I'm going to bring their downfall. Again, in verse 15 of that same chapter, uh, the, uh, the Philistines were nemesis in the side of Israel forever and ever. As we read through the scripture, we find that the Philistines are always there in battle. And he says the same thing about them. They acted revengefully against Israel, so now he's going to come and bring their downfall. But, but the main one that gets the attention here here, at least from chapters 26 to 28, is this city, this nation of Tyre. After this, it's Egypt, but Tyre. And, and, and Tyre has the same problem. Notice in chapter 26 and verse 2, he says, Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Ah, the gate of the people is broken. It is swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. You see, Tyre looked at the destruction of Jerusalem and said, Good. This will be to our benefit. We'll not prosper even more because there's, you know, one of our competitors has gone. Or, or we'll be able to go in there and get the spoil as well. And so they were happy that Jerusalem was destroyed. And he says, no, 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 you don't get to be happy. You don't get to take advantage. They're my people and so I'm going to come. And what was really behind that was the pride of Tyre. Notice in chapter 28, skip over a chapter, in chapter 28 in verse 1. It says the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, the king of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god, that you make your heart like the heart of a god. He's saying, listen, the king of Tyre thinks himself to be like God. He thinks himself to be self-sufficient. He thinks himself to be dependent only upon himself. He thinks that he can define his own life. He thinks that he can direct his own life. And he thinks then that he can go out and get whatever it is that he wants. And that will bring delight to his life. And that will satisfy him. And he answers to no one else he follows. No one else he takes direction from. None other. He sees himself as a god. And, of course, that was only reinforced as his his wealth increased, as his strength increased, as his wisdom increased over others. And he began to become more autonomous in his own mind. But then God goes on, verse 6 in the middle of it. Because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, They shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Then verse 9. This to me is just one of the most (sighs) eye-opening verses. in This whole section. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? Here he is, right in the face of those who are more powerful, those who will really kill him. But because of the pride of his heart, the answer to this question is, yes, i look at those in the eye who say they will kill me and say, no, you won't. Yet they will. That's the pride of a heart that thinks one is like God. But then in a very interesting turn, Ezekiel goes on and he makes this whole indictment greater than just for the people of Tyre. Notice verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now that's interesting. Why would he throw that in there? This is a long way away from Eden. You know it is in chronological years, but in terms of what happened there, not so much. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he lists a series of stones. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing to the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. You get this strange sense, don't you? And somehow, Ezekiel is comparing, God is comparing through Ezekiel, this whole situation with the pride of the king of Tyre, with the very fall that took place in the Garden of Eden. And you get this sense that he's talking about one who is a man like Adam, and yet this guardian cherub who is cast down to the ground like Satan. You begin to think, that's sin, isn't it? That's what keeps us from God. It's that pride thing. It's that pride that says, no, I can really go it alone. No, I can really be my own person. No, I can really define my own life. No, I can really direct my own ways. I can really delight in only that which satisfies my passions. And you begin to think about the, the very sin that came upon Adam when, 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 when Satan came to him and said, you can be like God if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because, Adam, that puts you in the position of, of being able to define what is good and what is evil. And that's God's job. God gets to say what's good and what is evil. But, but if you eat of this tree, then you'll be able to say, No, God, I'm my own person. No, God, we're going to go our own way. No, God, we're going to do this ourselves. Thank you very much. And you see, the same sin of pride is the same sin that was enveloped in the heart of this king of Tyre. And he thought himself to be God. And then, I must say, I think of Romans in chapter 1 as well. Beginning with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, that's our problem, isn't it? That deep down we suppress this truth somehow. We know God exists. We know we're not autonomous. But yet we live as if we are. We just we just put him down and put him aside sometimes violently, sometimes apathetically, sometimes just to put him over there, but we, we live as if God isn't really real verse nineteen, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in which things uh, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse, in other words everything's just Shouts God, the heavens. The Scripture says, declares the glory of God. Question is: Are we listening? Are we hearing? Are we watching? Are we seeing all the marvelous creation of God? Because if we are, that in and of itself should cause us to turn and to bow before Him and to say, "There's someone who's greater than I to whom I must, I must follow." And then He goes on, verse twenty-one: For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. That is, they didn't honor him as God or, or say, thank you for all of this, for giving me life and breath and health. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their minds. Futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They said, we'll worship whatever we want, but we're making it. It's coming from us. Same sin, and so we realize that God is the judge of all the earth; that God is the God of all, and whether it's Israel and He's bringing discipline and judgment upon His own people in response to His covenant, or all the nations of the world who turn against Him, He's going to judge, and that's and that's that. But in the midst of this, there is this promise of hope to the people in exile in the days of. Ezekiel, don't worry. I'm going to destroy all of your enemies, and you will be able to live in safety. Now, if you can think about being one of those people in exile and getting that word, and remember they don't have CNN telling them what's happening in Edom and you know, the Ammonites and the Philistines and all that, They're just getting this prophetic word, I suspect it would be rather hard to believe. To think is that really going to happen? And as Ezekiel is saying, I want you to set your heart this way. I want you to understand this is what's coming. I want you to understand that there will be a time when, maybe not you, but at least your children or your children's children, someone will be able to live in safety because God's going to destroy all of your enemies. Okay, you got that? Because that's just introduction. Now, here's the point. I think about what's that mean, really, in the context of our own lives? But I think this, that we're caused, called by God, to live with the same kind of faith. When we were thinking about the advent of Jesus, and we're thinking about him coming in as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one thing that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago is from a passage from Psalm 110, which is repeated numerous times in the New Testament. In fact, it's it's the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1, which says... Someone under ten, that this one's going to come and he's going to sit at the right hand of God, and he's going to rule and reign, and bring all of his enemies under his feet. That's the promise we have from Jesus. It's it's reiterated uh, about Christ in First Corinthians, for instance, in chapter fifteen, and verse twenty-five. The apostle writes, "For he must reign." That is Jesus. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What he's saying is, right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning. And right now, he's ruling and reigning and he's bringing all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus is bringing the downfall of all of his and our enemies. Very similar word that Ezekiel was telling the people. Don't worry. Right now, God is conquering all your enemies so that a day will come when you'll be able to live in safety. And they would have heard that And they would have remembered, perhaps, Isaiah chapter 2. We heard some of this stuff as we were singing. I hope you pay attention between songs. Isaiah chapter 2, that swords will be beaten into plowshares. Now, that's a very interesting image, isn't it? It's saying, I'm going to take weapons of mass destruction. We'll find them. And we're going to make them into implements that will feed you. Wow. That's miraculous says a day is going to come when it's going to be like that. Isaiah 11 says there's going to be such peace that natural enemies will come together. The the wolf and the lamb are going to hang out. Now that doesn't happen right now. Well, it's needs brief. <laughs> the calf and the lion are going to share the same pasture. A child is going to be playing around the hole of a cobra. And its mother is not going to freak out. Because when the cobra pops up, they'll both laugh. A day's going to come when it's going to be like that. In fact, Isaiah goes on by Isaiah 65 to say the only words we have to describe what's coming in this land of ultimate safety is that it's a new heavens and a new earth. That's what they'd be thinking. Well, you know, we, we, we sit with the same kind of promises, don't we? that Jesus has come and he rules and reigns and all of his enemies are being put under his feet. In fact, the apostle says it more uh, personally and explicitly in Ephesians chapter one for us in verse uh, 22 in Ephesians one. And he says, and he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus. So the father puts all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him his head over all things to the church. He's saying, listen, I'm gonna make Jesus, give Jesus authority over everything. And then I'm gonna give him as a gift to the church. Meaning that he's now ruling and reigning over everything, miraculously enough, for the benefit of his people. Just like in the days of Ezekiel. Don't worry, people. God's ruling and reigning. And he's bringing your enemies downfall so that you can live in peace. Same word. Don't worry. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's ruling and reigning in such a way so that you, the people of God, can have Peace. We we read the great promises, most especially we heard some of them out of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that a day is coming when there won't be any more tears, when there won't be any more injustice, when there won't be any more poverty, when there won't be any more pain, when there won't be any more war, when there won't be any more disease, when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and there'll be peace for the people of God. But if I were the people in the days of Ezekiel, I'd ask the same question that I ask today, and that is, why don't I see it? They were still in exile when this word came to them. And here we are today. Now, we do catch glimpses of the very fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning. Every time the word of God goes out and is declared a new life comes to someone, we say, yes, he is ruling and reigning. I see it. He conquered that heart. Every time the people of God make decisions that are godly for the sake of Christ, we see that Christ is ruling and reigning in our own hearts and lives. The scripture says every time that someone comes to another believer and helps them and gives them a cup of cold water or clothes them or whatever, then, of course, we see the very ruling and reigning of Christ in that context every time a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Every time a woman submits out of reverence to Christ for her, to her husband, we see the rule and the reign of Christ in the midst of that situation. Every time apathy turns to compassion for the sake of Christ. Every time judgmentalism turns to mercy for the sake of Christ. Every time the, the blood of Christ is claimed to cover a sin. We see the triumph, the work of Christ. But every time we open the paper, we see war. We hear reports of famine. We walk through the hospitals and <laughs> we see people crying because diagnosis of cancer has been made. We see death among us. We certainly see injustice. We certainly see poverty. We certainly see people hurt. We certainly see immorality around us. I was talking with someone the other day saying as he was walking out of the Free State Lawrence High basketball game the other night, he couldn't believe the language of the students. Sadly, we believe it, but it's there. We see the immorality that takes place. We see how the name of God is defamed and dishonored and all of that. And we, with the saints in heaven, as you read in the book of Revelation, we want to say, "Lord, Lord, how long can this go on? How long can this continue? So we don't see the ruling and reigning of Christ. What must we do? Well, we must do what we've been called to do, which is live by faith. And the people in the days of Ezekiel would have to live by faith in that word from the prophet, tuck it away, keep it with them, and no matter what else was happening in the midst of their lives, be able to say, but I know a day is coming, I know a day is coming, I know a day is coming. And that, you see, would be the very thing that would keep them from becoming discouraged, to keep them from coming, uh, to keep them from losing hope. That very faith. You remember the life of Paul. Second Corinthians in chapter four, he describes his life. Verse eight, he says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Quite frankly, that doesn't sound like a triumphant life. He's getting beaten up all the time. And if I think you go up to Paul and you say, "Paul," after a good beating, and the, his back looks like hamburger, say, "Paul, you discouraged," he'd say, uh, "No." Have you given up hope? He'd say, "Why?" And you'd say, well, because you're getting beaten up all the time. What sustained you? Verse 16. So we don't lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory behind, beyond all comparison. And here's the secret. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient or temporary, but the things that are, I'm sorry, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, I look at what I can't see. See, we're called to look at what we can't see. And what we can't see, but that we look at, is the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so you see, when difficulties come, I have a little catechism that I go through. You don't have to be old and dead to write a catechism. So I write catechisms for myself all the time, questions and answers. Like when something bad happens, I begin to think, well, where's Jesus? And the answer that comes back is that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. And I always say, uh, really? And the answer is, yes. And I say, well, why can't I see it? Well, Because it's not ready for you to see yet. Well, what's he doing? Well, in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of this difficulty, you see, every time people begin to focus on what is valuable and throw away what is invaluable, ah, he's ruling and reigning. Every time they make decisions to follow after Christ and to live by faith, ah, he's ruling and reigning. Okay. So then how must I live? By faith. But will I ever see it? Ah, yes. Really? Yes. When? Ah, when he returns. Then you'll see it. Because you see, when he comes back, there is a judgment. And it's very interesting that the judgment can be viewed just like it was in the days of Ezekiel. For instance, you know the situation in Matthew chapter 25. It's a great judgment scene in the New Testament. And what happens is that all the nations of the world are gathered before Jesus and they're judged on how they treated the brothers of Christ did you see some did you see a brother of Christ hungry did you feed him thirsty did you give him drink naked did you give him clothes in prison did you visit him jesus said you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine you've done it to me. But if you've treated them with contempt and you don't belong to me, that's when we'll see it. My last question in my catechism is simply this, but can I believe it? And I begin to think. There was a promise given a long, long time ago. And it was a promise given when the greatest scandal that could ever be imagined occurred, and that is that the crown of God's creation rebelled against him. These people, Adam and Eve, created by God to love him and to fellowship with him and to reflect him, actually turned against him and thought themselves to be like God. And rather than destroying them, as God had every right to do, he gave them a promise, and the promise was that a day will come when out of the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of evil, crush the head of that serpent, Satan, though his heel would be bruised. And yet even as that promise was given, you wondered how in the world that would ever become fulfilled because if I'm Adam and my one son then afterwards comes to me and says, confesses that he just killed his brother, I wonder, is this really going to be the case? Can someone really come and set this all right? And then it seems to get worse. God's own commentary on what took place was that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of people were evil continuously and it didn't seem like it was getting any better. And then a judgment comes. There was a flood over all the earth. One family was saved, but in the midst of that, the the head of this serpent was not crushed. In fact, in just a brief period of time, the the pride of people became manifested, and people began to try to make a name for themselves. So God again had to separate people from one another. But the head of the serpent wasn't crushed. But then, all of a sudden, there was a promise given to this man, Abraham. And we got the feeling, we got the sense that this that, that, that this promise would be fulfilled through him, because it was through him and his seed that all the nations of the world would be. Blessed, and that promise was reiterated all the way through his sons, and we realized he would come from the tribe of Judah, he would be born in the line of David, and be a king like him, a priest of the order of Melchizedek, and and, and promises then began to come, that when this one would come, he would preach the good news to set captives free. He would, he would give sight to those who could not see. He would unstop the ears of those who could not hear. He would enable the lame to, to walk and the mute would, would shout for joy, that people would come into the very presence of this one with singing and gladness would be upon their heads forever and forever. And the nations of the world would come together and indeed weapons of war would be melted down, would be changed to implements of peace and health and help. And then there was a great deal of silence. No discussion at all, no prophetic word, nothing coming to the people. And then all of a sudden there was a star that came on the heels of an angel coming to a man and a woman. And there were angels and there were shepherds and there were wise men. And then there was a slaughter of innocent people because this one who had come was so dangerous to the political authorities of the moment. And then there was a flight to Egypt, and then there was a return home. And then there was nothing. Quiet again. And then there were some priests that were really impressed with this young boy. And it made sense to them in some strange way to think that he was really about his father's business. And then there was silence again until there was this very strange man in the wilderness who began to shout, let's make straight paths for the Lord. And then there was a dove. And then there was a word. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And those who were blind could see. Those who were deaf could hear. Those who were lame could walk. Those who couldn't speak would shout. And then they killed him. And then he came back to life because it was in the killing that the head of that serpent was crushed, though his heel was bruised. And then we begin to think, is this the time? Is this the time when all of these wonderful things will come true? And the answer was, he left. He ascended. He went. So what's he doing? He's ruling and reigning and bringing all his and our enemies under his feet. So that a day will come when there won't be anything even as small as a thorn or a briar to bring discomfort to our souls or bodies. Because, you see, a promise was made. And that promise was that in the same way that he left, he's coming back. And that, you see, is the truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that none none of us would have a hard heart and not believe. I pray that you would work in each of us, that we'd all believe it and trust. And that which would keep us from discouragement is the hope that we have that Christ is at work. And we have certainty that he will return And when he does, that we will know everlasting peace and everlasting joy. Because everything around us will reflect him. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that elders will be available to pray in the office area. So please take uh, advantage of that. Christmas Eve service, seven fifteen, uh, Wednesday evening. Response to the benediction is the same response that we have been saying throughout this Advent season. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. That's our hope. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power, that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.